There's more. <laughs> <laughs> How many days to go? <laughs> These are a couple of questions that were given to me. I'll try and address them if we have time. <laughs> Somewhere along the way. <coughs> and I was thinking today... Oh, good evening, everyone. Um, I was thinking tonight, or this afternoon, about some of the uh, interviews this morning and this afternoon. And uh, some of the yogis uh, were talking about uh, going through the experience of vipassana, practicing vipassana, and uh, how difficult, difficult it is to go through this particular path at certain stages of the practice. And it's certainly that way, uh, there's no doubt about it. It can be a very arduous uh, and difficult path up to a point. Uh, before it changes into something uh, sublime. <coughs> but until that point, we need, uh, and they were expressing that it's difficult to maintain uh, the confidence in, and the uh, effect, uh, about the effectiveness, if you like, of the Satipatthana Vipassana path and of the Buddhist teachings. So I thought I'd like to just start by addressing that a little bit uh, to give you some, uh, hopefully give you some confidence. Now it's a lot more difficult for us here um, in the Western countries uh, where we're not uh, surrounded by these teachings. Um, I noticed in Burma and other countries that uh, the people in Burma and Thailand, India and all the other Buddhist countries and uh, even those of uh, ethnic origin that live in the Western countries such as Australia and etc. Um, I spoke to them once about this uh, confidence, especially the meditators. Here I'm talking about the meditators. And I said, uh, you know, as I was uh, going through uh, the doubts and um, uh, um, negative thoughts about the Dharma as one was experiencing uh, uh, severe knee pain and back pain and whole body pain and feeling like you've been put through a torture chamber and you're thinking, why? Can't I just go surfing in Waikiki? You know, wouldn't that be better? You know, I would think this. And I asked them, I said, um, how do you because you know, in Burma, of course, uh, no chairs. You know, they don't use chairs. Actually, we're lucky here in some ways, I can tell you. Because um, one monk uh, that we invited to come to Australia in 1985 or something, he came into the meditation hall the night that he arrived and he said, Oh, there's cushions and chairs. Please remove them. <laughs> I said, um, Sidor, um, I think we'll have a revolution. <laughs> he said, why? I said, well, you know, people are not used to sitting on the floor and all this sort of thing. And he finally relented. But he was somewhat shocked 
And then when he saw people bringing in armchairs and 20 <laughs> cushions, he was, he was trying to be good because he was a visitor in the country, but I could see that he was absolutely <laughs> amazed that this would happen. You know. <laughs> the Burmese don't have these luxuries. And so they, uh, well, they, they don't, I won't say they don't need them because when they discovered my four-inch piece of foam, they're all practicing craving to get it from me. <laughs> <laughs> so I could have uh, made quite a lot of money actually if I had a hundred pieces of foam, four inches thick. But still, I said to them, "Why do you? Why do? You, how, how do you have the?" Um, confidence to sit here hour after hour after hour through all this pain <coughs> and they said um, that we're brought up from it uh, with the Buddhist teachings uh, from a very early age and we hear uh, that the Buddha said that if we practice and our teachers if we practice this Satipatthana Vipassana that the benefits for us will be very great indeed. And so we don't actually know what's going to happen, but we have confidence because they have told us so. You know, and we've read the teachings and we admire what the Buddha had done and the qualities of the Buddha and the attainments of the Buddha, but we actually don't know. We suffer also through the same um, stages of insight and the same physical torment as you do, except that uh, our teachers have told us, you know, to sit and not move. And we trust what they say. And they do. And I was always really taken uh, by the way of practice uh, that the Burmese engendered. Uh, Westerners would go to the or go to the meditation centres, and uh, we practice in a topsy turvy kind of way. You know, sometimes we're super slow, sometimes we're a little quick, sometimes we're not doing the full sittings, sometimes we're not doing the full walkings. Uh, we go off and have breaks, and this is how it was for the Westerners. And suddenly, also, also people would sit there and they'd sit really straight, you know, like this as if they were Buddhas sitting in a statue of the Buddha. But the Burmese didn't practice in that way. They had a very, uh, in the centre I was at least, a very relaxed attitude. The schedule was get up at 3.30 in the morning, start sitting at 4 o'clock and uh, go through until 9 o'clock, a three-hour break for... Um, Although there was breakfast, they did serve breakfast at 5.30. And then at uh, 10.30 or 11 o'clock, there was the uh, one main meal of the day. And then 12 o'clock until 9 o'clock at night, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, uh, with a Dharma talk uh, interspersed within that. But they did it in a very relaxed manner and they never missed a beat. The bell went, they sat. The bell went, they got up. The bell went and they walked. And the bell went and they sat. And I really learned a lot about 
uh, how to move around the meditative world from watching this. And they moved at pretty much the same pace all the time. They didn't sit looking like a Buddha statue. Some of them did, because remember, no cushions. But the men especially, I like sitting with men because they shrunk. Yeah, so there was no shh like this. They were just ordinary people trying to practice the Dharma, going through ordinary things, the same as we are. And they would just do it. They just did it. Hour after hour after hour. And at nine o'clock, they would clock off and go to bed. And I'd hear them up in their rooms and they'd have a little chat with each other and the siders would say, oh, those Burmese, they just talk all the time. <laughs> you know, the Westerners, so much better. You know. But it wasn't actually the case. They were just pretty relaxed. And then 3.30 they'd get up and do it all again. And because of this confidence, they had this ingrained confidence uh, in what the unfolding of the process, if you like. And because they'd heard it, many, many times. You know, then they discussed it amongst themselves many, many times. So they'd all heard about the path of purification. They'd all heard about the insight path. And so they somewhat knew what to expect because they'd been told about Dukkha Vedana before. And they'd be talking about how the mind tightens up around Dukkha Vedana. So they had a way of dealing with this. Um, and whole families would come to the meditation centre. But once I was sitting there and this father came in with his eight-year-old son and they stayed for about five days and they sat in front of me. And the young boy uh, was twitching and moving and uh, somewhat driving me crazy for a little while. But it was amazing to see even him starting to quiet down, quieten down. And the father would encourage him. I'd see him give him a little pat on the shoulder and he's saying, you know, please try, please uh, get through this. And so even the little boy was starting to experience Dukkha Vedana, you know, these uncomfortable sensations that you're all experiencing at the moment. But they have the confidence in the Buddha, confidence in Dharma, confidence in the Sangha and the teaching. Now we're not brought up in that. You know, so we're used to um, avoiding uh, as much as we possibly can being wiped out at Waimea Bay. And we're used, to, we're used to avoiding any unpleasantness as much as possible. We have so many means of distraction from seeing the realities of things that, uh, you know, if you had a dozen computers, you wouldn't be able to fit in all the, all the uh, distractions that we can make up to distract us ourselves from facing uh, you know, life's, life's uh, uncertainties and life's um, stresses. Isn't that the case? Uh, we're not really used to completely facing up to uh, the realities of things. Now, I must say that in Burma, for example, as it's being modernised, uh, this is also happening to the Burmese. 
suddenly I'm going to Burma and they're saying, oh, I'm so busy. <laughs> this one taxi driver would say, we used to smile a lot. Now we're too busy to smile. <laughs> we're getting caught up in the modern Western world and we're losing our uh, spirituality to some degree where they would go to the temple, listen to the Dharma talks, offer Dharma to the monks and live a very contented life, if you like. So when we come ap across these um, difficult uh, and um, uh, physical sensations or destructive emotions in the mind, it's quite hard for us to deal with. And so we need a lot of encouragement because we're not used to it. Are we? You know? This is my job, is to try to encourage you, you know, to keep going and to keep looking and to keep watching and to keep going through all the processes, all the experiences that come up in meditation practice uh, for the reason of coming out of suffering. But to really have strong confidence in that, uh, it takes a little while. It takes a little while and it takes a glimmer of the Dharma to arise in the mind through the meditation practice. And when you start to get that glimmer of the Dharma, the you know, glimmer, if you like, just a peak of the peacefulness that can come through the meditation practice, until that point, it's a struggle. It will be difficult to balance the mind. Uh, but when you start to get that glimmer of the Dharma, it changes your whole perspective. And suddenly, oh yes, you know, my uh, abbot, when I was a monk, uh, he organised a, I told this story the other day, a little bit, he organised, uh, I spent three months in a Thai temple in uh, India, in uh, Buddha Gaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, by myself, with all these Thai monks. But the abbot thought, uh, I wanted to meditate, so he said, okay, I'll organise it for you. And he had a meditation teacher who happened to be in Buddha Gaya, studying at the university there, Southeast Asian history, or something like that, which monks do. And he organised for him to come uh, once a week to uh, take my report, and much as you do with me, and um, um, give me a little Dharma talk about this and that, much as I do with you also here, and he would come uh, and do this. And this went on for some weeks, um, and it was a very uh, uh, happy time. I enjoyed it at that time. And. Um, one time I came out of the meditation hall and in the Thai temple in Budgaya, it's a beautiful temple. If you've been to Thailand, you would have known, you see how beautiful the temples are, literally. You know, it had a beautiful meditation hall and big. And he was, I plonked down this little Australian kid, you know, surfer, sitting by myself in this meditation hall um, with a number of cushions. I might tell you. <laughs> but one time, the experience in the meditation uh, became very bright. 
and uh, very uh, blissful for me. And I came outside and uh, was admiring, well not admiring, it was just like the awareness became so strong and so locked into these purple flowers that were around this pond. And suddenly the flowers just started to dissolve in front of my eyes. And, you know, if, if I wasn't an ex-flower power person, you know, I could use an expression of what, what it was like. But I am an ex-flower power person, really. <laughs> it was just remarkable. And a big smile was coming onto the face. And my teacher came up and he said, he looked up at me and he said, oh, taste the Dhamma. <laughs> taste the Dhamma and so that's what I'm talking about here you know when one gets that glimmer of uh, the mind that can be at peace and uh, not be caught up in the torments of the mind the destructive emotions in the mind then the mind can experience a, a great uh, peace and um, that is what gives you the confidence to continue. In fact, you have a, uh, uh, a strong desire, if you like, now to uh, continue and to go further with the practice. But to do that, uh, we need to be courageous in some ways. Courageous to sit with the initial unpleasant sensations and of both body and mind and to train the mind to focus in, uh, in an objective way to the experiences that we're having uh, without the identification and judgments about them. And that is really hard to do, isn't it? You know, we're, we're, we all have trouble. Now I'm not saying after you've had this glimmer that all, it's all plain sailing. It's not. You, know, you start to go through other things which are often more difficult than the painful knee. And so there's still a long way to go. Uh, but still you've got the confidence to go because you've experienced something on the other side that is different. And so you, you can do it. You can be wiped out at Waimir on a 20-foot wave. I use all this because Zach and I like this. <laughs> but you'll get back and paddle out again. Right. Whereas a number of occasions, I had a very close friend in Australia once, uh, one of my customers in my business, and she decided she wanted to come and do the meditation practice. Uh, we had started a meditation centre up in the Blue Mountains, a beautiful uh, mountain area west of Sydney. Too cold for me though, really cold, Dukkha. <laughs> so I'd like to run away from there as quickly as possible. <laughs> but it's beautiful and we started this meditation centre a number of years ago now and she went up to do this retreat and um, I wasn't there for her and I've always felt unhappy about this. But this she went through quite quickly and she started to feel the Dukkha Vedana, you know, the, the uh, unpleasant experiences rather quickly in her practice. 
and her pain was so excruciating. But unfortunately, she wasn't able to overcome it. And she's never meditated again. Never. And there's nothing I could say or do to convince her to go through that again. And I've always wondered, uh, not that I'm any great shakes myself, but if I could have been there to encourage her at that moment, that time, whether it would have made a difference. Because in my own practice, I was lucky enough on certain occasions to have a teacher that could push me through, you know, could encourage me to get through. And I've always had a, uh, some emptiness about that. Yeah. Because it's why I keep trying to encourage you to go through these things. Uh, because uh, when you taste the Dharma after going through it, uh, you'll be very grateful for what you've experienced. And the Burmese, although they may not have experienced this, but they have the confidence that if they persevere with the practice and do it in a uh, smooth way, uh, you know, without deviating, that the concentration and mindfulness necessary will build up enough for them to go through this. So that's something about confidence. I mean, most of us are not brought up Buddhist, you know, so we don't have that to fall back on. You know, we're not all that sure about the Dhamma. You know, what's all this impermanence business, you know? No self? Of course there's self, you know? Who's telling me there's no self? You know, so how are we going to really believe this until we start to experience it for ourselves? But, but they have an in, a kind of inherent... Uh, confidence because they're brought up with it all the time. So confidence is really important in practice and I'd like to try and encourage you to persevere until the time comes where through your own discovery, as uh, the Buddha said in one of the Kalama Sutta, you can discover for yourself and gain the confidence in the meditation practice uh, that it can give you uh, the benefits that they say about it, uh, that it can give, something like that. Even if it's, uh, we're only here for a short time, but at least what would be uh, acceptable to me is if you're able to have at least an inkling of how the practice is how to do it and to work on it and to have the interest to keep going with it. Because it's not, uh, sometimes it's not a speedy process. Sometimes for some people it takes some time. Other people, due to their karma, etc., etc., it takes a quick time. And it doesn't matter particularly how long it takes. But without the commitment to it, uh, you're not going to be able to achieve the uh, benefits. So if that can come out of the retreat, uh, then I'm very happy you know, that if you want to continue in some way or other with this and build up the confidence and start to experience uh, that taste of Dharma that I talked about, and then your confidence will be 
uh, fixed, it won't be a problem anymore. So the confidence they talk about in uh, Buddhism is not a blind faith, but it's something that comes from us directly experiencing for ourselves uh, the, the um, truth of what the Buddha also discovered himself. You know, he didn't make this up. You know, he went in there and practiced for six years after he left the palace and went through all the dukkha until the point came where his mind was ready, you know, his awareness was strong enough where he could um, break through. You know, he didn't have any teachers. Well, he was the teacher. He had previous like uh, teachers while he was practicing, but none that were, could give him the path. Uh, that would take him to the final goal. And so the Buddha, that's why he's so remarkable uh, that he went off into the forest and went through all these methods and techniques and teachers and finally he was able to break through himself in Buddhgaya under the Bodhi tree 2,600 years ago, which is quite remarkable. And here we are again, as I said last night, sitting here practicing this uh, Vipassana meditation. Another thing to help with confidence is trying to keep the um, benefits of the practice in mind. Trying to keep the benefits of the practice in mind. And they give a, in the text they give a, a, a number of benefits. And I'd just like to uh, go over these just a little bit so you'll get a an idea from how it's presented in the text. I won't go very deeply into it, just a little skim, if you like. But they say that the first benefit is the purification of the mind. The purification of the mind. Now, this equates, of course, to the path of purification, which we probably won't touch on tonight, but maybe we'll touch more on tomorrow. But I, have, I did start it with uh, the... Um, purification of, uh, or we started talking about it with the purification of morality. Uh, what they're referring here in, to in very simple um, uh, terms is that as you progress along the path, or when you start the path, even the first moment you start the path, even with, uh, mentioned last night with Shantideva, the first aspiration that comes into the mind. This is the beginning of purification. Uh, and then as we keep going on the path, little by little, slowly, slowly, slowly but surely, uh, then certain uh, aspects uh, are purified. And so they talk about the first benefit of being, as being purification of the mind. Now, here it means that the things that cause us suffering, the mental states that come into the mind, and our view about things is purified. Right? So in other words, last night I talked about the root causes of suffering being greed, hatred and delusion. Uh, finally, but not only finally, but as we begin to practice, what I noticed in my own practice, is that the mind wasn't so filled with these three factors, with these three roots. 
and other negative tendencies. And if they did come up, to, up into the mind, uh, there was a shortened duration in time of how long they lasted. And I think this was one of the most uh, revealing things to me, or aspects or benefits of the Dharma. Now, this started to happen because I told you I started to practice in London at a Thai temple. And, but I started to notice quite soon that the old reactive habits that I would have uh, has, were starting to uh, not have the same strength. Or if they did arise, they had less strength and didn't last as long. Because you could see things much more quickly you could catch up into the mind. And what mindfulness does is it develops a space in the mind. And so you can see what's happening, sometimes even before it happens. So it's not this instantaneous uh, impact and reaction to things. Now, I don't know if this is a, if I should mention this story, but I, you know, I will. <laughs> um, I was standing I actually was a flower child it's true I can confess to being a surfer and a flower child in fact when I was a flower child I actually wasn't a surfer but sometimes there was a combination of the both <laughs> when the craving for surfing took over from the flower I used to walk around London with John Lennon glasses flared black pants and a cravat and hair down to here. And we all looked great, we thought. <laughs> we probably looked ridiculous, but... <laughs> you know, I'm standing on the street one night outside of our apartment. You know, a lot of Australians used to bunk up in these apartments. And this policeman walked past. And he came up to me. And he thought, oh, here's, here's a flower power person. He must have something with him, right? some drug and there was a moment in my mind where I could see and it wasn't the case of course I was a very good boy then as soon as I became a Buddhist I became a good boy <laughs> except for the surfing and I could feel this bubble these wobbles in the mind just a little bit you know fear you know because everyone was fear, scared of the police and so the little fear started coming into the mind and instead of reacting to it. I just was watching this happening and the fear just came and it started to subside quite quickly um, and what came in its place was amazing. As the policeman came up to me I could feel loving kindness come into the mind and he stopped and he smiled and he said having a good evening? I said yes thank you and he moved on and that was it. And that was one of the first times I realised that if the mind is not fearful, if it can see when that mental torment comes into the mind, uh, that there's nothing to worry about. Something like, I think, uh, and after I, and I started to notice that the life situation uh, also started to change and because you could see when there was resentment in the mind you could see when there was anger in the mind 
then you could start to see uh, where this came from. Because a lot of, as I mentioned the other night to Robert's question, um, it all comes from um, the three roots of not understanding. And so you start to see that something like resentment, for example, comes from dislike in some way or other. So resentments come into the mind, but with the power of the mindfulness, it doesn't take hold of you. you know, it's there. It's not that it won't be there. In the beginning, at least, it's there. But it's not grabbing you. You, know, you feel it, and sometimes you feel it extremely strongly. When anger comes into the mind now, uh, it's really powerful. You know, it comes up. I, this is what I notice, so I'm reporting to you. <laughs> you know, I notice that the anger is really strong, but the duration is very quick in its falling away because you've noticed it without <laughs> judging it, without identifying with it, without saying, oh, I'm a really bad Buddhist because I got angry, you know, something like that. And it just dissipates and dissolves. It's amazing and leaves the mind clean. And they talk about the purification of the mind as cleaning the mind. Cleaning the mind. It's like getting, you know, putting the mind in a washing machine and cleaning it up. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> That's a probably a really bad analogy. But, oh, no, I don't mind that actually. Yeah. Something like that is how it works and functions. So the purification of the mind, in respect to the path of purification, it talks about the purification of concentration, where the mind gets purified through the uh, efforts we make to concentrate the mind and uh, somewhat deep, um, suppress, if you like, temporarily at least, uh, the defilements of the mind, the uh, calaces of the mind. But we'll talk more about that possibly tomorrow night, how that unfolds. But essentially it means the destructive emotions, the negative tendencies are finally removed altogether from the mind. Now that's an interesting uh, phrase, isn't it? They're removed. They use the phrase removed. They are no longer there for an enlightened being. There's nothing there that can, I mentioned this also the other night, that can bring about a reaction of anger. Which is amazing to contemplate when I think about that. Wouldn't you think? Can you see a time when your mind is no possibility of greed, hatred and delusion arising? That must be remarkable, I think. How peaceful that must be. Mm. Being replaced, of course, or not replaced, but enhanced <laughs> by uh, compassion and kindness and generosity. Remarkable. Mm. When one starts to understand, the second benefit is known in uh, Buddhist terms as the overcoming of sorrow and lamentations. There's an old term for you, lamentations, sorrow and lamentations. I love some of these uh, 
uh, translations of <laughs> the Pali into English. Of course, they were done by English people. Not that I've got anything against English. My mother's <laughs> half English, after all. Sort of like New Zealanders, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they do do a good job. But in the <laughs> English... You know, my mother was sent a... Uh, when she turned 100, she's, all, she's English also. She's English. And uh, she was sent a beautiful card by the Queen. And it had a picture of the Queen uh, standing there with her corgis. <laughs> it was absolutely great and a really nice message. Dear Mary, I'm really happy you've made it to... Mum says, how many more years have I got to go on? <laughs> but Queen Elizabeth's going. She got cards from everybody. Prime Minister, this, that, the, everybody. It was amazing. She was a celebrity for the day. For, for a few days, it was amazing. Yeah. The overcoming of sorrow and lamentations. Whenever there's loss in our life, depending on the degree of attachment, there's sorrow and lamentation, isn't there? Uh, whenever we lose a relationship, you lose a job, uh, lose a loved one in our family, uh, the, uh, the crises that hit the world now because of uh, climate change, you know, if it's something that particularly concerns us or is close to us, there's often sorrow and lamentations in regard to that loss. But with the, with the practice of meditation, we begin to develop understanding into the nature of things. We live most of our life just about all our life really, with what the Buddhists call Michaditi, which is wrong view about how things actually are. Micha, Micha, Ditti. I may not be pronouncing that so well, but I'm sure I can be pulled up on it. But Micha Ditti, I like it. Micha Ditti. It's wrong understanding about how things are. We think because of our ignorance or awija that we have this view that uh, everything stays the same, nothing's going to change. But we have a certain understanding on a graveside, graveside level, you know, but it only lasts for a short time. We think nothing will happen to us because we're permanent. And that's how we view things. When you look honestly and clearly, you know, you start to think, I'm solid, I'm going to last forever. Even though we know superficially that that's not the case. But deep down we think like this. We think that our jobs, our relationships, the people we love, etc., the environment, everything's going to stay as it is, even though we realise to some degree it's not. We also think that uh, this mind and body actually has a permanent entity to it. And we think that there is an I, me, mine. This is mine, this is I, this is uh, my personality, this is my thought, this is my opinion. This is my view. You know, we have this 
all the time. And on a conventional level, of course that's quite valid. You know, we think, this is my country, this is my name, and this is my place, this is, uh, there is time, there is space. These are all, these all come under the uh, purview of concepts in the mind. And Vipassana though, and, and are not real, they're just thoughts in the mind. Now, Vipassana is not concerned with the conceptual level of the mind. It's concerned with ultimate realities. And when you start to view the body and view the mind with this objective awareness or the mere observation of it, you start to see that those views are, in actual fact, erroneous. But this is hard for us to understand. But as you go through the process, you start to have these insights into the impermanent nature of things. You start to see, yes, you know, there actually is no I in mind on an ultimate level. So when the Buddha was teaching, when I find this a very um, uh, good way of understanding the Buddha's teachings, um, so it doesn't uh, scare you off, when he talks about non-self and all this sort of thing. He talked about things on two levels. On the first as being the conventional or, or um, conceptual level. But he talked about them also on the ultimate level. So he explained on one level, it's necessary of course to have these concepts. You know, we need to know, my name is Graham, I come from Australia. Uh, there's a song about that and I could probably sing it. <laughs> come from the land down under church, you know. um, he's from England you're from Hawaii he's from Utah Florida whatever you know so we have this concept and it's necessary you know, I'm a business person a meditation teacher uh, you're whatever you happen to be doing and uh, we, we relate to you in that way, don't we? We sort of relate to ourselves. And I have a family, a number of children. You know. Dogs are really big now in Australia. <laughs> Dogs. Are, you, are they big here? Everyone's got a dog. You know, everywhere you go, they're walking dogs. And I feel, and they're all in leads now because the council comes along and finds you if you, you know. And so I feel really out of it. Yeah, I feel really isolated. I'm thinking of getting a dog just so I can be part of the community. You know, you know, what's, what's the use of a cat? I can't take the cat walking. You know. At one time it was children. And I still feel... Sorry, Zach. At one time I felt really isolated because I didn't have any kids and everyone was down there groveling over their kids. You know, and then I decided that wasn't a good way to go. But it was a concept in my mind, and it's what everyone felt was making them happy. Mm. It didn't, didn't look too happy to me when I walk along the, <laughs> I walk along the beach, you know, with the little plastic bags, picking up the feces, you know, all that sort of business. <laughs> I said, you don't look too happy. Oh, no, we love our dog. <laughs> yeah, what time is your dog? And, you know, oh, mine's a, you know, da-da-da-da-da. But it did, it is a quite a good uh, community thing, but that's how we function in the world, is through that, that uh, level, isn't it? You know? 
that it's not the Dharma. You know, it's not the essence of the Dharma, at least. Uh, the essence of the Dharma is to being able, being able to see the truth of things or the reality of things. And as you go through the practice, uh, this will open up to you more and more. And in not such a long time, you know, the, the beginning, the glimmering stages of insight meditation start to appear quite early in the practice and you get a feel and so you can walk you can be in the world with an understanding this is what I like about it the best is you can be in the world with an understanding of the conceptual of the concept of the I can't even say it the conceptual level but you also have an understanding of the ultimate level and this is do you understand what I'm saying here this is really important I think you know, because you can be in the world, I don't want to say not being in the world, but with an understanding of the human condition. With the understanding, and this is the beauty of the Buddha's teachings, was that he went out there and practiced for six years, then sat underneath the Bodhi tree, and his interest was in working out why is there suffering? You know, you all know the story possibly about the four signs that the Buddha discovered when he finally got out of the palace. He saw a sick person, a dead person. And he saw an old person who was crunched up, much as I'm getting. And he saw a monk serenely walking along. And that gave him the impetus. I want to go out and discover. He'd never seen a dead person before. He'd never seen a sick person because everything was hidden from him in the palace. And so it's said that because of past uh, karma, probably past interest, he was interested in finding out the truth of suffering. And he wasn't just he wasn't just talking about ordinary suffering. Ordinary suffering. Suffering comes in terms of Buddhism. Um, I need a drink. Excuse me. <laughs> Just have a break for a few minutes. <laughs> he wasn't talking about... He was talking... He talked about suffering on uh, three levels. And uh, just to very briefly um, mention this, he wasn't just talking about the suffering of um, everyday life suffering. Uh, the Pali term for this is dukkha dukkha. Dukkha dukkha. And here it means birth, uh, disease, old age and death. That this is the, uh, the way it is for us. It's the natural law of things that this is going to happen. We're going to be born, uh, there's going to be disease, we're going to get old and we're going to die. So he talked about this in, on the level of Dukkha Dukkha. And to understand that is one of the uh, ways that we can view our existence in the world. So Dukkha Dukkha. Here it also talks about physical Dukkha. You know, it talks about the disease, it talks about stubbing your toe, it talks about, um, um, it talks about being uh, late for an appointment, it talks about you know, crashing the car, it talks about getting wiped out at Waimea Bay, it talks about a relationship going wrong, it talks about all those little everyday things 
you know, we want to do walking meditation, and it's walking, dukkha, how can I walk? You know, so the mind starts to be tormented. And it's those little things in life, and the big things in life on that level, which cause us stress and suffering. You know, the world is obsessed with stress now. Everyone. My hundred-year-old mother talks about stress. You know, what she got? She says, well, I'm stressed because I think I'm going to die tomorrow. <laughs> She's quite funny about it, actually. She said, do you think I'm dying? <laughs> yes, I think you are. <laughs> she pulls out the whiskey, has another little top. She's quite funny sometimes. So dukkha dukkha is everyday dukkha. It's the dukkha uh, that we um, have to deal with every day in life. And the Buddha mentioned this level of dukkha. He also mentioned the second level, which is a little more difficult to say in Pali. I'm sure that Tan will be able to correct me. Um, oh, God. How do you say Tan? Viripana. No. Gee, I used to be able to say that. It's really hard at this time of night to remember. Anyway, let's. I'll think about that and get back to you on it. We can have a break while I... <laughs> it's the level of change. You know, the first level of dukkha, dukkha dukkha, is concerned with both, with, with, both the, with both the body and the mind. So physical and mental. The second level of dukkha is concerned with the mind itself. And it's concerned with changing circumstances in our life. How we think on one level uh, that, for example, we have a job for life and suddenly we get sacked. We think we have a relationship that's going to last forever. Suddenly it's over. We think that the cat is going to last for another 50 years and it's not. It dies. It's these changing circumstances in life uh, that affect us and create dukkha. Isn't this right? Isn't this correct? It's correct. The third level, very briefly, that the Buddha talked about was much more in-depth. And it's known as Sankara Dukkha. I got that one. Sankara Dukkha. It's the oppressive nature of change and the oppressive nature of the constant bombardment of mental formations. In other words, our thoughts and emotions. When you start to look clearly, one of the insights that arises in the practice is just how much of a torment this constant barrage of thinking and emotions is. And the constant changing nature or impermanent nature, the anicca, as the Buddhists say, of this situation, of our situation is. Now this is a very deep concept. But this is what the Buddha discovered under the Bodhi tree when he was sitting there for enlightenment. 
And it sounds very pessimistic. But in actual fact, it has the opposite effect on the mind, apparently, in that the mind becomes joyful and peaceful and free and light and buoyant and bright and beautiful. Because once you understand the nature of things, how it actually is, it's okay. Everything's okay. Can you understand this? It's a bit hard, I know. But with the meditation practice, as you go through the process, you'll be able to understand this further. And even just on an ordinary, everyday level, understanding about Dukkha Dukkha helps you. Because instead of getting caught up in the whole show, instead of wanting to bring out, uh, you know, when uh, um, something happens that you don't like and you start to feel resentment to it or anger towards it, when you say dukkha dukkha, you know, this is part and parcel of everyday life situations. And so the mind can be more restful, it can be more, if you like, non-attached. The torments of the mind don't grab us so much. And so the mind becomes, they say that the mind of an awakened being is uh, free and liberated and as I said, bright and shiny. Uh, and they've reached the highest level of happiness uh, that uh, can happen to us. And in that point, particularly, the overcoming of sorrow and lamentations due to the understanding of the human condition itself drops away. Drops away. And that's the amazing part, I find, that sorrow, lamentations, grief, etc., etc., towards our experiences in life no longer affect us because this is actually life itself and we understand that. Something like that is how it works. Now, some people may say, well, doesn't that make you an uncaring person? No. It doesn't. When you look around at all the great masters in the world and mistresses, I don't know what term to use really, both male and female, aren't they people of good heart and good mind and concern for the well-being of everyone? You look at all the Nobel laureates, uh, Dalai Lama, Aung San Suu Kyi, Reverend uh, Tutu, but you look at the people you may know yourself and see the people have a selfless attitude towards uh, what they're doing and how they're doing it and how they can help people. A friend was telling me about uh, one uh, teacher here in Honolulu and how she was so wonderful with her students and encouraging and helping them that she's loved as a, as a uh, deva in the sky. They love her because she helps so much. And her mind is pretty free. So it's not a non-caring or indifferent state, as sometimes it's viewed, but it's a state that is not rocked by things, 
is not thrown by the winds of uh, experience that touch us. But it's a state that's in the middle and balanced uh, with everything. And so, as I mentioned earlier, what remains, if you like, if there's any remainder, is these uh, compassionate states of mind for the suffering of people. They understand about the human condition and so they have compassion for the suffering of all beings. Can you understand this? Something like that is how it all unfolds. So I think we'll stop here for tonight. Uh, there's another few and there's another all of that. <laughs> and it might take us six months <laughs> to get through that. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to give you tonight is some encouragement there, you know, and to some confidence, you know, after um, you know, some of the uh, reports today that were coming in the interviews to carry on and keep going because um, if you can do that you'll find a great benefit. These benefits will start to accrue and you'll start to see for yourself uh, that through your own endeavours, not because of someone said something or you've read something, but from your own direct experience and you start to then feel uh, the genuine peace and happiness uh, that can arise through a mind that's not caught up in craving and attachment. Not caught up in craving and attachment. Or at least for us a reduction in this. And you'll notice that the life becomes a lot less stress-free and a lot more peaceful and a lot more harmonious as you clean the mind. Thank you. <laughs> Is there any questions? <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate